0: Okay, let's go to John chapter 15. Last week I ran out of time. I don't know if you could tell that or not. I typically preach about an eight-page manuscript. I made it to page five and a half. So we had to get kind of to the end. Um, I wanna pick up where we were going to end last week because we're in a 10-part umbrella series about the way of Jesus. We're trying to address the holes in our discipleship as Western, late modern, digital, American Christians. We oftentimes read back into Jesus' way of discipleship, our modern concepts of education, and we miss a lot. Not that study and knowledge are unimportant, but that there may be 30% of what Jesus has on offer for us, and we want to get down to the other 70 or so. We talked last week a little bit about the lifestyle that's necessary to follow Jesus. We picked on, in some ways, and laughed together about some of our experiences, those of us who've grown up in evangelical churches, the ways that we have been discipled, quote-unquote, And so I want to go to Jesus' perspective first, speaking to his disciples at the close of his ministry, and I want to hear from him together his idea of the life that comes from following him. What do you actually do if you're going to be with Jesus, follow Jesus, belong to Jesus? Here's what Jesus says, beginning in John 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. So he's using a metaphor right out of the gate. He's speaking in a word picture here to help us. I am the true vine, And my father, this is the way that Jesus speaks about God, is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me, so each of you disciples, or to use the word we talked about last week, Talmudim, you apprentices, that is in me, that doesn't bear fruit, the father will remove. And every branch that does bear fruit, the father will prune, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you have been made clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So in that sense, Jesus is communicating to his disciples at the point that I'm communicating with you now, right now, this second, in this upper room, the night before I'm going to die, you are grafted into me. That's done. But how do you remain in me? How do you continue to be effective? Verse four, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, still using that metaphor, unless it abides in the vine, unless the branch stays connected to the vine, then neither can you, unless you likewise abide in me. Verse five. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do just enough to get by. No. Very little? No. Nothing. Apart From me, separate from me, you can do nothing. And it's implied there, it's not written out, but nothing that truly matters to God. Obviously, you can breathe and drive through Taco Bell and eat food and go to your kid's soccer game and get your papers turned in on time. But if you want your life to have spiritual significance, if we're talking about following Jesus, Jesus says, if you are apart from me, it won't happen. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, then he will be thrown away like a branch and withers. Excuse me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, and then they're thrown into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you'll ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father, God, is glorified that you bear much fruit, and in so doing prove to be my apprentices, my disciples, my learners, my pupils. Last week, I gave you my definition of negative discipleship. If you weren't here for that, I recommend that you go back and listen to that or watch that. It's available on our website for you. All of these sermons are going to be really tight in series. This is essentially going to be about an eight-hour lecture split into ten pieces, so we really want you to try to stay on track as much as possible. What we said was that negative discipleship is typically the way that evangelical churches respond when a new Christian says, what do I do now? Now what? I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I confessed Christ in the park at a party or at a VBS or somebody was in my living room and we were on our knees talking about who Jesus is or I was reading through the Bible with a Christian and we got to John 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And I thought, I'm not born again. And so I asked Jesus to do that in my life. What do I do now? What happens next? And oftentimes our response, I would argue somewhere north of 90% of the time, our response has more to do in the long term with telling people what to avoid than it does communicating what they can add to their life that will bring them into the presence of Jesus. So the question for me is, if that's been our modus operandi, if you will, have we been taking Jesus' advice? Is Jesus primarily instructing his disciples in John 15 or in any of the places that he instructs them in the New Testament to avoid, to dodge, to sidestep certain things? Or is there a sense of activity involved? Is Jesus actually inviting them into doing certain things specifically? Look back at verses 4 and 5. I hope your Bible's open here. We need to know if following Jesus is built more on what we don't do or more on what we do. Here's what he says, verse 4. Abide, stay, be rooted in, stay with me, and I will be with you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide, stay with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if what we defined last week and poked fun at a little bit is negative discipleship, to use my definition, what Jesus has in mind is positive discipleship. A version of discipleship that's about adding things to your life, making yourself do and participate in things that are unnatural, that are not part of who you would be, and not just simply avoiding sin and sinners until you get to heaven, which I don't think any of us would raise our hand and say that's what it's all about, but does our lifestyle reflect that that might be our attitude from time to time? This is not a life of avoiding and dodging, but a life of doing, of living, of abiding is the word that Jesus uses. Jesus' words in John 15 actually warn us of what a life of negative discipleship can lead us to. If we are consumed with avoiding sin, eventually we will become unwilling to take any kind of risk spiritually at all. We will want to only do the bare minimum required in order to live in this world and we will insulate ourselves from as much of everything else as we can. But we can't follow Jesus without risk because Jesus is not safe. He's not predictable. He's not polite Remember a week ago we were in Mark, several different parts of Mark where Jesus called his disciples. I'll remind you of what Jesus said in Mark 8.35. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. And so in other words, a lifestyle of trying to save your own life, even if that lifestyle is informed by God's definition of good and evil, that lifestyle of trying to save your own life will end in you losing your life 100% of the time. That's what Jesus says. You'll lose your will. You'll give up your choices. Your life will become flat and colorless and binary. You'll view everything through the lens of yes and no, right and wrong. And when your temporary life on earth ends and you step into eternity, there will be no more life for you. Self-preservation is not the way of Jesus. Jesus' life is not about protecting himself, it's not about insulating himself, it's not about guarding himself from what could go wrong. In fact, Jesus again and again intentionally puts himself in the presence of his worst enemies and tells them the truth. Again and again and again. And in each of those truth-telling moments, there's an invitation to repent and change and come into the life of Christ to follow after him. He's our model, he's our rabbi, we are his apprentices, so we should be a little uncomfortable if our Christian lifestyle isn't somewhat similar to his. If our Christian lifestyle is simply leading us to protect ourselves from the bad guys in the world, we may not actually be following after Jesus. We may have taken parts of his teaching and misapplied them in a way that has led us away from the lifestyle of Christ instead of into it. But here's the flip side because I don't want to just be negative. In that same verse, in Mark 8.35, Jesus is saying, if you are willing to lose your life for the purposes of Jesus, if you're willing to give up the things that make up your life in the name of the very near-at-hand kingdom of God, then you will preserve yourself. You'll preserve the part of yourself that matters. You'll preserve your mind You'll preserve your body, your spirit. You don't have to waste these things away in moral self-defense for 80 years so that you can hopefully go to heaven at the end. You can instead place your mind, your spirit, your body, your soul in Jesus' hands. And that life, the life that you get in exchange for that will be so much more and so much better than what you can find on your own. It'll be better than what you can try to preserve by being morally hypervigilant. Maybe you don't know this. I'll say it to you this way. Even if you made the perfect choice at every one of the thousands of microscopic crossroads that come to you in a day, if you did every single one of those choices exactly right, and if you did that for 100 years and then you died a good death surrounded by people who you love, that life that you lived would be a weak and thin replacement for the life that Jesus offers you. Sometimes we believe that if we could just get it right, we wouldn't need Jesus anymore. This is some of the damage that comes from us seeing the life of Christ as only a a resolution to sin and not actually a positive idea of what it looks to live into the kingdom of God and to take the kingdom of God into every corner of of human life, which seems to be the way that Jesus lived. When we misunderstand our Christianity as simply a get out of jail, or in this case hell, free card, or just insulation against evil and wrong, we lose the life-giving ability to affect other people. All we can do is have a moral argument with them about whether or not they're going to go to heaven when they die, which has been compelling at periods of time in human history. But in this day and age, with my peers and younger, that's not necessarily as winsome as it used to be. Now, I'm not saying we ought not evangelize people with the clear truth of Scripture. Not at all. If you walk the Romans road with a person in the grocery store, walk at every chance that you have. But be prepared for them to look at your life and ask you if what you're saying matches up with how you're living because we're a little more interested in authentic faith. We're a little more interested in being genuine and seeing the life of Christ come out of Christians than maybe we have been in the past. Now the reason that this matters is because discipleship to Jesus, him as our rabbi, and us as his apprentices is positive. It involves action. We ought not be willing to call ourselves disciples of a person whom we're not following. In fact, if we lived in the first century and we claimed Christ as our rabbi, yet we never literally walked behind him in the road, people would mock us. It would be the end of our reputation and no one would take us seriously, regardless of what system of faith they held to. Our life with Christ involves action. It involves choices. It involves the giving up of what we would consider to be self and taking on the self of Christ. It's an active process. The word that we use in 2022 for this is discipleship. The word that Jesus used in John 15 is abide. So if we can take that concept of abiding and just drill a little bit deeper today on what that means. To me, abiding ties together the first two of the three goals that an apprentice of Jesus has. To be his, which is belonging to him, and to witness his life up close and personally. And if you weren't here last week, excuse me, or if you need a reminder, the three goals of an apprentice of Jesus are this. To belong to Jesus, to behold him, and to become like him. That's what we want to do. If we're apprenticing after somebody else, we have to first be invited into their presence. That's belonging. Every single time that Jesus called his disciples, as we saw in the book of Mark last week, he went to where they were and he called them into his presence to follow him. And that was an honor to them. Second, we need to behold him. We have to be up close and personal to witness the life that he's living or we'll never be able to emulate what he does. Following Jesus is not having a magic spell cast on you and suddenly you become like a person you know nothing about. We become like Christ by watching him live his life and then we do our best to emulate him. And then finally we become like him. That's the byproduct of being invited in and spending time close by. He does rub off on us and he does it faster and more significantly than any human apprenticeship that any of us has ever been a part of. So those are our goals with Jesus. We want to belong to him and behold him. Abiding with him involves belonging to him. He said in John 15, 2, every branch that is in me, that implies belonging. He's talking about being drawn in, pulled into his presence. He also talks about beholding him. He says, if my words abide in you. How can you abide with Christ? How can his words abide in you if you've not been exposed to them? There's an element of being up close and on the front row as Jesus is teaching and living. Now, you and I, as disciples of Christ, as apprentices of Jesus in 2022, we are in Christ because we belong to him. And as our rabbi, he has invited us to follow him personally. And because he is our rabbi, we watch and we listen as he speaks and acts in the Gospels. So we've been in John 15. Go back a chapter with me to John 14. It's the same sort of two-page spread in my Bible, but you may need to roll back a page uh, to find your way there, depending on how your Bible's laid out. I said to you earlier that in John 15, Jesus is wrapping up his ministry. This is essentially one long presentation that he's making to his disciples the night before he is going uh, to die and leave the earth uh, spiritually and physically. As he's getting ready to depart, he's trying to explain to his disciples, and by extension, he's explaining to you and I, all the disciples who would come after these guys, how a person can continue to follow a Jesus who is about to physically go away which is incredible, incredibly relevant to you and I, because Jesus, when our service is over today, is not gonna be physically standing outside the doors of the sanctuary, waiting for you to cancel your lunch plans and leave your car in the parking lot and walk with him through downtown Anchorage. We need a way to follow Jesus that doesn't require him to physically be right in front of our bodies like the original 12 disciples experienced. Jesus is answering that question. In John 14, beginning in verse 16, hear this. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, I will speak to God on your behalf, I'll make a request, and he will give you another, and the word here, depending on your translation, probably is helper, uh, but there's a note there, this is the Greek word parakaleo, or the paraclete, which as a kid I thought was funny because it sounds like parakeet, and so I often visualize the Holy Spirit as as a parakeet, which is not right, don't do that, but in the way that we wrote it on the screen, I put helper, counselor, advocate, because the language here is the idea of a person who is called out to, who comes alongside you to aid and assist you. So you probably heard in Christianese all the time we talk about coming alongside somebody. We wanna come alongside you in the way you you help your kids. We wanna come alongside you in the way that you minister to your teenager. We wanna come alongside ministries in our city that are doing good. That concept of coming alongside is exactly what the Holy Spirit's main priority is. To get into your life as it's already being lived and to bring you closer to your objective than you would get on your own. So Jesus says, God the Father will send you someone like that, another Someone like that. Now, that another is extremely important. Don't miss that. Jesus is implying, I am this way. The one whom will be sent will also be this way, just like me. In order to be with you forever. This is good news if your Jesus is going to the cross tomorrow morning. Somebody is coming soon who won't leave, who doesn't have to go to another cross later again. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, the spirit whom the world can't receive because it neither sees the spirit of truth nor knows him. Again, the implication there is that the world is not the disciple of jesus worldly people are not belonging they're not beholding they're not up close they're not following so we should not be surprised when they have no familiarity with the spirit of god but he says you do know him and that's a surprise if you're a disciple in john 14 because you think you know jesus and jesus is your rabbi and now he's going to leave And now this other person is going to come whose whose name, he's the spirit, he's a spiritual being, he's not even a person, and Jesus is telling you, you already know him. He says, he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Jesus is saying, the spirit is already here. And there's a bit of Trinitarian theology baked into the way that this is described as well, because Jesus is implying that he and the spirit are one. They're the same. That's what he means in verse 16 when he says, another of the same kind, another helper, counselor, advocate. It's what he's driving at here in verse 17. You know him for he already dwells with you and he will be in you. 18, great news right here. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So Jesus is implying that when the spirit of God comes to rest on his disciples and empowers their life, that spirit is not acting separate from Jesus. The oneness of the Trinity of God is in play here. Jesus himself comes in the form of the Spirit, another of the same kind, a helper, an advocate, a counselor. I want you to understand this because we oftentimes spend too much time trying to separate out the Trinity from each other. We're more concerned with what divides them than the fact that they're unified and one. The Holy Spirit is not a spooky ghost. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The active, living presence of Christ, not embodied, not physical, but fully spiritually present in you. That's what the Spirit is about. Skip down to verse 25 in John 14. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the counselor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, then I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. There's a whole principle in this second passage, verses 25 through 27, that we can't tap into today. I don't have time, but we're going to get there in a few weeks about how the presence of the Holy Spirit, the immediate effect of that is peace in your life tranquility, serenity, whatever word you want to use, the thing that you're looking for when, when you go to a yoga studio or when people want to burn salt lamps or, or ding bells of different frequencies and hang crystals in their apartment. Jesus says it's actually available by the presence of God in your life. We're gonna tap into that more, but the big point that I want to make to you today, the point of emphasis here for me is that we are not able to physically follow Jesus. And so much of where we were last week discussing and trying to comprehend what it means to follow Jesus, there's a big gap In between the way that the disciples did that in the four Gospels and how you and I are expected to. The teaching of Jesus doesn't change or go away. The concept of following him or our need for a rabbi, those things have not changed either, but the way that we experience the presence of Jesus is different now. And so we look into the life of Christ, we try to understand how his disciples were meant to follow him, and then we have to figure out how do we have that relationship with a being who is not physical. We can't sit with Jesus while he cooks fish on the seashore and reproaches us about the way that we've denied him three times and then invites us back into physical leadership of his church, like Peter experienced. We have to have a spiritual relationship, a relationship that's built within our spirit and our mind. Our body still participates, but there is no physical Jesus to hug, to shake hands with, to lean onto when times get hard. All of this in chapter 14 is lead in to the metaphor that we read in John 15. It's all one big idea. Jesus comes to us as the Spirit. He is our helper. He is our advocate. He is our counselor, which frankly sounds an awful lot like a human rabbi. What else should we expect from a rabbi to do but to counsel and to help and to advocate for us? And along with the Spirit comes peace. So to abide is to be rooted. It's to be located, it's to be placed uh, somewhere on purpose. And Jesus is speaking in spiritual metaphor in John 14 and 15 by describing our spiritual connection to him. He does that by way of the spirit as, as similar to the physical connection between a branch and a vine. So I'm just reminding you there, Jesus isn't literally talking about branches and vines. He's using a metaphor to be clear. But if we can follow that metaphor to its conclusion here, the physical location, the place that a branch has to abide to be a branch, is in the tree. A branch separated from the tree can still be a branch in form, but it can never be a branch in function. And that's important because we should be able to acknowledge if the if the metaphor is good and right, and I think it is, that people who call themselves followers of Jesus can look like that in form. There's a way to look like, to have the appearance of one who is following Jesus. The litmus test for us is the function because it's the litmus test for Jesus. Jesus doesn't say separate yourself from me and you'll stop looking like a branch. He says you'll stay looking like a branch. You'll just be a dead branch. And you know what happens to dead branches? They get burned. They're only good as firewood. That's their purpose. So what's available for you and I is not just these two starkly different looking versions of life. What's available is two kinds of life separated by subtle commitments to God. Subtle presence of spiritual gifts. Subtle presence of peace, love, joy. The kinds of things that the spirit bears as fruit. What Bob read to us earlier. Here's what I'm trying to drive at for you. Up to this point in our process, all of last week, half of today, we have discussed that there is a way to follow Jesus that must be different from what a lot of us have experienced. Because we find oftentimes at most that we've been offered two or maybe three practices to add into our life that are supposed to somehow outweigh all of the temptation and the draw to go back to the life that we left behind to follow Jesus. What I am not trying to get you to do is rebuild a new legalistic religious system. I'm not interested in that. I don't wanna make this church into a cult. I'm not trying to influence you into believing that certain practices are somehow much more important or more spiritually significant than others. What I'm trying to get you to realize is that there is a way to look like a branch. There is a version of being told, you are a branch now, you are connected to the vine, when in reality, no fruit is ever born. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us are pretty comfortable being duct taped to the vine, not abiding in the vine, being stuck back into the vine again and again and again by programs and systems and books and Christian music and podcasts, each time trying to convince ourselves that maybe if I do this long enough, then I will bear fruit. But our starting point is wrong. We're trying to work backwards from the product into the system instead of asking ourselves, have we learned the system from Jesus? I am trying as best I can to clearly argue that I don't think we have. I think we have learned the system from how to educate a human mind. I think we have learned the system from generation upon generation of people who have told us what we should and should not be doing if we're going to follow Jesus. I'm not sure we even really know how to navigate the Gospels on our own. And I have nothing, you have to hear me clearly here, I have nothing against any other part of the New Testament. All of Paul's epistles should be preached in the local church. They should be taught for how we should do church, how there should be polity, what's good, what's not good, the way that things should be structured. But I think there has been an under-emphasis on the actual words of Christ in our evangelical world. I think we have spent a lot of time a lot of other places and it's been disproportionate and we wonder sometimes why we struggle when half of the time that we've heard preaching, it's been rooted in the Old Testament and it hasn't been the kind that gets you to Christ, it's been the kind that just sort of sticks and lands where it started. It's just history, it's just teaching, it's just facts, it's just knowledge, it never gets us to Jesus. And Christian, I said this to you last week, I'm gonna try to say it every week in this series. If it is all about Jesus for us, and the product of whatever church we're involved in is not actually moving us closer to Jesus in any discernible way, that should make us angry. We shouldn't be happy about that. That shouldn't make us comfortable. We shouldn't clap. We shouldn't invite anybody into that system or setting. Jesus said, if you abide in me, there will be fruit. Not, I hope eventually there's some fruit maybe. Or certain people with theological educations or calls to ministry or who work in the church vocationally, they'll bear fruit and you'll just fund their branches. That's your job is to just let them bear fruit in front of you and you eat it and then you give them money so they can keep doing it. Jesus says, if you are abiding, there will be fruit. So it stands to reason that if you have never seen fruit, regardless of what anybody has taught or told you, you're probably not abiding you're probably doing something else. You may look like a branch, you may feel like a branch, you may have borne fruit sometime a long time ago in the past, but Jesus says if you are in me but you're not bearing fruit, eventually you will separate yourself from me and you will no longer be connected. You will lose this life-giving relationship that you have. I don't think Jesus is trying to threaten anybody's salvation in John chapter 15. I think what he's implying is that following him is about a lot more than that. But that's great and it's important and we should communicate about it and it's, it's a point of great emphasis both in the Bible and in the way that we share our faith. But for we who are Christians, if we meet Jesus at 16, the next 84 years of our life cannot just be a waiting room for heaven. There is a life to be lived. There is a way to follow. We are meant to stay with Jesus. We are meant to be rooted in him, located in Jesus all the time spiritually. In short, I'll say it to you this way. We want to get into Jesus' presence and we want to stay there. We want to get into Jesus' presence and we want to stay there. That's abiding. If we can do that, we will abide. And as we are in Jesus' presence, we will also be with the Spirit. We will also be with the Father. So what comes to mind for you when I say that? When I say to you, we need to get into God's presence and stay there. Does anything come to mind where you go, this would help if I could do more of this thing or if I could replace this habit with this other habit? Maybe then spiritually, mentally, I would remember that I can be in God's presence wherever I am. Does anything come to mind? Does anything pop up? I know I'm I'm asking a rhetorical question, I want it to be rhetorical, but I really wanna stir you here. I wanna get your mind wheels moving a little bit. I'm not gonna answer that question for myself yet. I will in a minute, but first I just wanna ask you to to consider a mindset change that may help you. If it feels like I'm knocking on a locked door in your head and I'm, I'm, I'm creating this idea and you're going, I don't know what to do with this idea, I've never heard this before, nobody's ever told me that there's things that I could do that would somehow get me into God's presence and keep me there. I want to share with you a mindset change that has really helped me in this process. So I'll share a quote with you from a guy named John Mark Comer. John Mark is a pastor and an author in Portland, Oregon, and he describes rooting ourselves in the presence of God like this. He says, as I see it, this comes down to learning to always be in two places at once. And then he's in a very, like, Modern, liberal, western, millennial city, so his examples will probably make you laugh. He says, eating your granola with homemade cashew milk and in the Father's presence. On your morning commute to work, in the bike lane, in the pouring rain and in the Father's presence. Doing email and in the Father's presence. With a cup of coffee and with a co-worker and in the Father's presence. Picking up your dry cleaning and in the Father's presence all day long that sounds a little different right that's probably a newer concept for you Jesus calls that abiding Paul the apostle referred to it as praying without ceasing if we go back on the timeline of Christian history before 1517 when all Christians were Catholic it was called contemplation there's a rich tradition in the old Catholic church of contemplation and a specific man a Parisian monk whose name was brother Lawrence of the resurrection he called it practicing the presence of God I'm going to ask you to participate for just a second. Would you just show your hand to me if you've ever heard of Brother Lawrence before? Anybody? Okay, good. I appreciate that. Thank you. If you haven't, Brother Lawrence was a Parisian monk. He had been a soldier briefly. He got injured. Then he worked as a footman, kind of like a valet for a rich guy in Paris. And eventually he gave it all up to give his life to Jesus. And he went the monastic route. He went down the monk road, which is not a road that Jesus modeled, but was very prevalent for a long time. And Brother Lawrence's job in the monastery was to do the dishes. And then eventually he got gout in his legs so bad that he just repaired sandals all day. That's it. That's all he did. He wasn't a teacher. He wasn't the priest that got out in front of everybody and distributed communion every morning. But he realized that there was a very simple way for him to find himself in God's presence wherever he was all the time. And so... In the interest of me not confusing you or you maybe thinking Brother Lawrence is some kind of voodoo mystic, I want to read two quotes to you, both from his writings. Uh, There's about 16 letters that he wrote. They've been compiled into a pamphlet that's called The Practice of the Presence of God. You can find it for free online because Brother Lawrence has been dead for 500 years, so he doesn't need your royalties. So you can download it as a PDF. It's, It's out there on Project Gutenberg, a couple other places. Two quotes I want to read you. The first, so you know that you're dealing with a real person. Okay? This is not a guy who had his head in the clouds and was disconnected from the suffering of real life. Hear this first. He says, I consider myself as the most wretched of men. Sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul, right? I'm full of faults, flaws, and weaknesses, and I have committed all sorts of crimes against this king. Touched with a sensible regret which is a wonderful thing we ought to all think about a lot more. Touched with a sensible regret, I confess all my wickedness to him. I ask his forgiveness, I abandon myself in his hands, that he may do what he pleases with me. That sounds like Mark 8.35. Brother Lawrence lost his life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. That's what it means to abandon himself into Jesus' hands. So now you can maybe trust this guy a little bit, I hope. You can see that he's grounded, he's rooted, he knows that he's a sinner, he's not living this life of of disconnection from the real world. Here is what he had to say about abiding with Jesus. He says, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. In the noise and the clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God, in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the Blessed Supper. Every morning as a 17th century Catholic monk, Brother Lawrence took what we call communion, what we're going to take in just a minute together. He started his days with the body and the blood of Christ in the form of bread and probably in the 1630s wine. In a few minutes, we'll take communion as well, and many of us will have a very similar experience to Brother Lawrence. We will feel at ease. We will find peace as we confess our sins, as we believe that we have been forgiven. We do it monthly at True North. Brother Lawrence did it seven days a week at the crack of dawn. Brother Lawrence says he found a way to live in that kind of peace at the height of the lunch rush hour in a noisy, busy kitchen, cleaning dishes and serving food to 30 to 40 hangry monks. I possess God. The time of business is no different for me from the time of prayer. What else is there for you and I? What other goal do we have? What do we really want out of life than to be able to say, I have been in the presence of the eternal triune God, and I have been with him minute by minute, hour by hour, so that when my life on earth ends and I step into eternity, very little will change for me. I will not experience death. That's the way that Jesus describes it. Even the apostles say that some have fallen asleep for a little while. That's not allegory. What they are saying is a life of following Jesus is, such, is so similar in every way to eternity in his presence. And it can be yours now. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. It's closer than ever to you. You can touch it. You can come in. You can step off of the road that you're on. Come in through the narrow gate. Hear the voice of the shepherd. All the analogies that Jesus teaches are not just about preserving you for heaven, soaking you in eternal salt so that you don't rot is not the objective. The life of Christ is here for you, and we don't know anything about it. our days fill up with responsibilities, right? Before you know it, another week has gone by, or a month, or a year, and all of a sudden, you find yourself squeezing in 30 minutes of quiet introspection on the last day of your family's annual beach trip. And that's what you get for the next 364 days. It was that little moment of, how did the last year go? You might try to have that conversation with your spouse at an anniversary dinner, but then you end up bickering about a thing you disagree about, and it's gone you get on a plane the next day and you fly back into your chaos and you wait and you wait and you wait until you can go back to that place again. We long for those moments, don't we? That's why we're willing to spend thousands of dollars on vacations. We're looking for a physical location, a place we can abide. You know where I'm headed with this. We want to root ourselves in something that will slow us down, that will calm us down, that will give us peace, reassurance, allow us to relax. For most of us, we long for that, we ache for tranquility, and we would do almost anything to get it. I'll tell you a funny story, a friend told me this week uh, that sometimes in the summer, she and her husband ride their bikes from where they live in East Anchorage to downtown to eat at a restaurant, and they do that instead of taking their car so that they can have about an extra 45 minutes on each side away from their kids. And that is funny, and you can laugh. It's not sad, it's normal. If you don't have kids yet, you're like, is that what all parents think? My parents didn't think that about me, did they? Oh yeah, oh yeah, they absolutely did. Saturday morning cartoons. Not good for your mind, great for mom and dad for just a few hours every week. Yes, that was my world too. This woman is a great mom. I would argue that her being a great mom probably is somewhat connected to her ability to separate herself from her kids once in a while. That may be an unpopular opinion, I don't know, but I think it's the truth. But even she needs a break. She's looking for solace. We are busy, people. We are busier than anybody has ever been and we are moving fast there was a study about three years ago and I didn't write this in my notes so I can't quote it but I'll try to get you the statistics if you want to know them but something like I think 80 percent of those of us who have a cell phone touch our cell phone screen 2,000 times a day in 76 different periods of time for a total of almost two hours that's new I don't know if you know that that's really really new And we're not necessarily talking about what that's doing to us. We're not discussing how that's impacting our spirit or our bodies or our minds, but it's significant. If we're not doing something to balance the scales, we shouldn't be surprised when we wake up at 70 years old and our life was full of stuff, but none of it felt like it mattered. We have an opportunity by following Jesus to live the life that he lays out before us. But how do we do it? And this is where we'll land the plane today. How can we actually abide? How can we possess God? I would argue this is where what are called the spiritual disciplines or what we might call spiritual formation or in more modern language, the practices of Jesus come in. So you can see here on the screen, I've got a slide for you of about 12 of those. And there's no one agreed upon list. It's probably somewhere between 15 and 25, depending on what tradition you come from. But these 12 are on all of the lists, and these are some of the most basic ways that we can habitually abide in Jesus as his disciples. My perspective, after two years of trying everything but these things and then finally landing on them, is that if you want to experience the kind of life in Jesus that Jesus describes, these are essential. And if the language of formation or disciplines or practices is not your thing, then you can think of these simply as habits. Habits that you form so that they will form you. Hopefully that's not a new concept to you. The way that we learn to be in two places at once, the way that we learn to abide in Jesus by the Spirit and still live our lives is by forming habits that will bring us into the presence of God and keep us there. That's the objective. But here's the catch. These practices are not the point. In fact, if these practices ever become the point for us, as soon as that happens, these practices have become not only useless to our formation in Jesus, but they may actually work against our life in Christ. We cannot build a new framework of legalism. We must come to these practices, seeing them as a means to an end. If we are hungry and we wish to be full, we eat food, but we don't worship the food because we love the food. That's called gluttony. In the same way, if we approach these practices as all it takes to be a Christian, then we have misunderstood the point. The objective is to get into God's presence and to stay there. So we'll finish with the verses that Bob read to us earlier today. Paul says this, and he's answering the question that hangs in the room in the middle of John 15. Paul's speaking into, if, if Jesus says you're going to bear fruit, we're left with the question, what does that mean? What fruit are we supposed to bear? Paul will answer that question. Look at verse 16 in Galatians 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law, And the works of the flesh are evident. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. And I warn you now, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. This is the fruit the branches bear if they abide in the vine. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with Him. That is the fruit of abiding in the vine. What we want to do is create habits that are modeled on the life of Jesus, and we're going to talk about how these practices that I put on the screen for you a minute ago actually come from Jesus' life in the weeks to come. That's where we're headed. But we want to do that in order to get us into God's presence and to keep us there. And as we abide, we will bear fruit, which means we will become the kind of people who are loving, who are joyful, who are peaceful and patient and kind and good, etc. These are not ideals. They are not objectives for us to strive toward. That's what I mean when I say that the disciplines are a means to an end. We can't turn the fruit of the Spirit into a bullet-pointed list. You can't take a discipleship class on how to be more good. You need habits and practices that put you in a position to be exposed to your rabbi. You need to belong to him and behold him. And as that happens, you will become like him. In fact, the only command in all of Galatians 5 is to simply walk by the Spirit, to abide, to stay in Christ, rooted in him. So let's start there. Next week, we're gonna look at our lifestyles. We're gonna talk about the idea that our lifestyles are built to give us the life that we live. And so if we want a different kind of life, we're gonna have to change the lifestyle that we have. For now, in the short term, I would ask that you pray that Jesus would open your eyes to your own futility, that you would gain a very helpful and humble sense of your inability to wrestle yourself into the presence of God, but that you would realize it's gonna take a plan, it's gonna take practice, it's gonna take community. And if you would, this week, Just spend some time thinking about how to get into God's presence and stay there. I want that to be the big thought that sits in your head for the next six days. I love you. I appreciate your time this morning. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to move into communion. Father, thank you for your word. It is so powerful to me that we have the actual written-down words that you said. Jesus, that we can quote you, is amazing after these thousands of years. And so I ask that as we've navigated a lot of your teaching this morning and tried our best to understand nuanced parts of it that maybe we've understood to mean different things in the past, that you would give us the humility to just have an open mind on these concepts. God, in some ways, what I'm hoping you'll do is, is let us skip back over maybe the last 150 years of church history and come back into a place where dwelling in your presence was normal. It was the starting point for disciples. That's who we wanna be. We wanna be people who are much more in love with you than we are concerned about just knowing what you know or having all of our facts straight, God. We wanna be in your presence. And we believe that as that happens, you will change us into the kinds of people that we need to be. So Father, we love you, we trust you, I thank you for our time today together, and we ask that as we move now into communion, God, that you would be near to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.